God has finally spoken to Job and his speech has startled us all. While we believe that his appearance would bring some form of answer or divine explanation, God instead appeared to Job not to answer questions but to ask them, 77 questions in all. Uh, Questions that effectively took Job on a tour of the universe as high as the constellations and as small as a raindrop. And then God took Job to the zoo where he showed him a dozen animals, sturdy, some strong, some strange. And in so doing, he created again afresh in the mind of Job the truth that what he had made he could manage And if a bird did not escape the attention of God, Job had not slipped off the radar screen either. God may be asking questions here, but we have learned that he's giving rather rich uh, assurances to Job, isn't he? And at the end of the first part of this tour, in chapter 40, Job is left with his hand on his mouth in mute awe and humility and submission. Now, I will tell you that until I studied this book with you, I had no idea how the creation of God could bring such comfort from God. Now I understand a little better why Peter would connect God's creative power to assurance and hope in suffering. As he wrote, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Our hope in suffering is literally bound up in the truth that God is the creator of heaven and earth and everything and everyone in them and on it. This is what God is doing with Job. Job, you can trust me in the midst of your suffering because I, the creator God, will do what is right. Frankly, if you're having trouble with the ways of God in your life right now. Maybe you ought to follow the pattern here and take some time and notice the ways of God through his creation. Simply put, for some of you, maybe today one of the best things you could do for your spiritual refreshment is to take a drive to the country. Then when you come back, stop at Dairy Queen. That'll help too. (laughs) Sit out on the deck at sunset. Ride your bike. Take a hike in the woods. Go camping overnight. My idea of camping is the holiday inn with some trees nearby. I don't know if you're that way too, but that works for me. Sit out on your porch or maybe in the backyard and don't just sit there. Listen. Look. Observe. You just might be led to worship God with fresh perspective and gratitude. David Atkinson challenged me when he wrote in his commentary on Job this particular phrase, sometimes it is by enjoying the creator's handiwork that the Christian can begin to feel again the touch of the creator's hand. This is God's panoramic uh, challenge to Job. Job, have you ever stopped lately to think about the snowflake, the raindrop, the dew, the wind? 
Have you considered the currents and the seas and the clouds passing overhead? Have you thought about who rules those planets and those twinkling stars way off in the distance? What about the lion that crouches in his lair or or the ostrich that buries her head in the sand? Can you figure out all the ways and wonders of my creation? I made all of that. And I made you. Down to the last detail. If I would take so much creative energy in thinking up snowflake design, what do you imagine I took in thinking up you? If I care about the sparrows, imagine how I care about the saints. You, sons and daughters of my grace and my glory, Galatians 4-7. You, who are new creations by the Spirit's power in the crosswork of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5-17. I wish I could deliver, friends, to you all I have learned about the universe and the animal kingdom over the course of this study. It's proof to me all over again that I wasn't really listening in high school science class. I really did deserve those bad grades. I've learned so many things for the first time. But as we come to the conclusion of this section where God speaks comfort to Job, God is going to once again focus on a couple of animals, two additional ones, magnificent, magnificent illustrations of God's power and providence. So let's pick up our study at verse 15 of chapter 40 as God says to Job, look, Behold now, evidently Job knew all about it already, so he's just rehearsing what Job knows. Look at the behemoth, which I made as well as you. Now, if you're like me, you immediately stop and you think, okay, now back earlier, I I know a little bit about the calf and the wild donkey and the horse and the ostrich, but I do not have any idea what a behemoth is. What in the world is a behemoth? Well, the word behemoth is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew word behemoth. In fact, it's, it's, uh, it's about as good as we can get right here. I hope that helps. So if you've wanted to know a little Hebrew, now you know it. Behemoth. Say that with me. Behemoth. It's impressive. It's actually a plural word which would normally be rendered beasts. In fact, because of its plural form, Some believe that God is only talking in general about large creatures. But because he specifically describes one particular animal in view in this chapter, and in chapter 41 he will specifically describe in detail another animal. I believe there is in his mind a particular behemoth in mind and the Leviathan later. Now scholars debate long and and loud about what animal the behemoth is. In fact, Many evangelical authors have suggested, in fact, I even have in my my notes here in this Bible, animals like the hippopotamus and later the the crocodile. Some have suggested it's a water buffalo or maybe an elephant. Well, that, that might be something we could figure out, but the trouble is it doesn't quite fit the description of these animals entirely. In fact, look at verse 16 of the behemoth. Behold, now his strength is in his loins and his power and the muscles of his, his belly. 
He bends his tail like a cedar tree. Not any elephant I've seen or water buffalo or even hippopotamus. Verse 23 says that even if Jordan was rushing toward it, it wouldn't budge him. Verse 24 says you can't catch him. You can't snare him. You can't cage him. I would agree with those scholars who believe that this animal is a kind of dinosaur. Here you get the tail like a cedar tree. Yet, it says in verse 15, he eats grass like an ox. Here you get the picture of the greatest land animal known to mankind of this species called dinosaur. Now you say, I don't see the word dinosaur. I've never seen the word dinosaur in my my Bible. That's true. The King James Bible, which was first translated in 1611, and it has taken several revisions since then, and along with a number of newer English translations that transliterate this word, it's interesting that it wasn't until 1841, some 200 plus years later, that the word dinosaur was coined. It wasn't even in the vocabulary until the mid-1800s. It was coined by Sir Richard Owen, a famous British anatomist who directed uh, the uh, British Museum. He originated the word for these huge creatures that were being excavated. Dino means uh, terrible and saurus means lizard. Terrible lizards, he said. These are terrible reptiles, awesome reptiles. After viewing the bones of the Iguanodon and the Megalosaurus, he realized he was examining something that that remained in a unique group of reptiles that had not been classified before. You could, I believe, accurately translate behemoth, great beast, dinosaur. Now, we're not sure which dinosaur God was referring to. One author suggested it was the Brachiosaurus, which, which weighed, if you can imagine it, 90,000 pounds. And that was before Christmas. <laughs> it was 75 feet long. It was over 40 feet tall, which means to get in here, it would have to crouch. The problem for the average person today, including the Christian, is that after a century of evolutionary conditioning, we've all been taught to believe that dinosaurs existed tens of millions of years before man ever walked the planet. They date these bones using indirect dating methods which have been proven to be inconsistent and unstable. Not to mention, Christian, that according to the creation account, we have Adam and Eve and the beasts created on the same day. So I guess we got to do away with the day idea and come up with millions of eras or epics of time. It can't be literal. Moses was speaking figuratively. We, we've got to have time for those fossils to age well over millions of years. Well, according to Genesis chapter 1, the world and the universe were created with all of the appearances and markings of great age for our benefit, fortunately. Trees were bearing fruit immediately upon creation. Light from the moon and the stars and the sun immediately cascaded over the earth. A man and a woman immediately, as mature adults, began to walk and and talk. Not eggs first, but the chicken. 
You heard it here first. The chicken came first. (laughs) Then the eggs, okay? (laughs) Genesis is pretty clear. Even bones that seem to be millions of years old were fossilized quickly by the right amounts of pressure and sediment and water, explainable only in terms of a universal flood. And even the most secular scientists are now leaving room for a catastrophe that answers why literally millions of fossils would be heaped together all over the planet. Fossils of sea creatures on top of mountains and in the desert. Genesis 1 is a record worthy of our study and inspection. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know I do not interpret the scriptures through the lens of the universe. I interpret the universe through the lens of the scriptures. And there's a difference there. Let me read from one account that I came across that will not be in your child science textbook anytime soon. It clearly indicates with this particular discovery that dinosaur bones are not as old as we've been told. 17 years ago, and we still haven't heard about it, 17 years ago, scientists from the University of Montana found T-Rex bones that were not entirely fossilized. The sections of the bones were considered, one scientist called, fresh bone because of what appeared to be blood cells. If these bones, the scientists explained, were really millions of years old, then the blood cells would have already totally disintegrated. A report by one of the scientists recorded this, and I quote, The lab was filled with murmurs of excitement as I focused on something inside the bone, the vessels that none of us had ever noticed before. Tiny round objects, translucent red with a dark center. They were, in fact, red blood cells. Blood cells are mostly water and cannot possibly have stayed preserved in the 65-million-year-old Tyrannosaur. They were indeed hemoglobin fragments. That discovery never made it to the PTA meetings I went to. Now, still, some would suggest that Behemoth in chapter 40 and Leviathan in chapter 41 are simply poetic creations. This is poetry. Uh, There can be metaphor, there can be hyperbole, there can be all sorts of different kinds of expressions. But that's what it must be. They're not to be taken literally. I take them literally. Here's why. For one thing, all of the animals thus far presented to Job as proof of God's providence are real. The only one we haven't known anything really about is the auroch, which we talked about in our last session, which is now extinct. Secondly, the detailed description of the anatomy of these two animals suggests real animals. Third, both of these animals are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture without any mythological context. We know Leviathan has mythology wrapped around it. It's seven-headed, uh, the seven-headed beast. Well, Psalm 104 talks about the Leviathan playing in the sea. All the animals thus far are presented as proof. They're real. We know much of the first section. The detailed description describes real animals. They're both, these two, mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. And fourth, and most importantly, God said he created them. We could have stopped with that one. 
Verse 15, behold now, behemoth, behemoth, which I made, I created, just like I created you, Job. That's good enough for me. The problem is that God implies here, and this is what causes so much heartburn and so many commentators, is that it implies that Job already knows about the behemoth. In fact, he's living during the days of Job. Behold, look. I made him as well as you, and he eats grass like an ox. And I'm glad, I'm sure Job was glad the behemoth ate grass for dinner. This massive animal, which is now extinct in our generation, clearly living in Job's generation. You know, another thing I found that was fascinating to me is that these stone carvings and drawings of people several thousand years ago show them hunting, spearing uh, mammoths and, uh, and antelope, even drawings by American Native Indians. However, though those drawings ended up in textbooks, not drawings on the same walls of people chasing down animals that look a lot like dinosaurs. Those didn't end up in the books. I need to warn you, and we're going to leave Behemoth alone here, um, but I, I've got to warn you, if you've got trouble with this one, you're going to really have trouble with the next one. God describes what is nothing short of a fire-breathing dragon called a Leviathan. Look at verse 1 of chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose? Can you pierce his jaw with a hook? Is he going to make supplication to you? Is he going to speak to you softly? Will he make a promise to you? Can you make him a servant? Will you play with him as a bird? Are you going to leash him for one of your daughters? Are the, the traders going to bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? By the way, this is the longest now description of an animal anywhere in the Bible. The Leviathan. Look at verse 7. Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? I like this next phrase. Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. <laughs> the Lord goes on in verse 13 to say, who, who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face. Around his teeth there is terror. His strong scales are his pride, shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. Look at verse 18. His, his sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. They're bright and glowing. Verse 19, out of his mouth go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth. I've heard all kinds of interesting commentary on this, that what he's doing is blowing a little water out in the mist on the morning sun. Looks like smoke. Whatever we can do to come up with a creature that we fully understand. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is nothing less than a fire-breathing creature. And you say, now you've gone too far. Well, 
Let's back up with what we know. Can you explain the Bombardier beetle, which stores in, inside its abdomen powerful chemicals that come down tubes, combine, form bombs that they fire away at their enemies without dying after the first bomb explodes? Can you explain to me how a, how a firefly can have a, a chemical reaction that converts chemical energy to light energy without burning a hole in its abdomen? Look at it. It's on Wikipedia. You can look it up just like I did. Look at the pictures. It's all there. They, they burn with 90% efficiency. A light bulb is 10% efficiency. I mean, you'd think one flash of light, poof, and it would be dead. Smoldering ash. That's what he gets. No, you, you can't explain how that happens. Why would it be so far-fetched that God could create some creature that could combine elements when mixed with oxygen become flammable? What we do know is that some dinosaur bones have been excavated that show a strange protrusion with an internal cavity, one scientist writes, on the top of the head where some speculate that it could serve as a mixing chamber for combustible gases that would ignite when exhaled. Look at verse 21. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes forth from his mouth. I'm glad I'm not running into them in the neighborhood. Aren't you? He's a real animal. Isaiah called this animal the dragon that lives in the sea. Isaiah 27.1. The Leviathan was a, a real animal, more than likely now extinct. If one happened to show up, it wouldn't, it wouldn't ruin my view of Scripture. In fact, I'm telling you I believe in it. Okay? It's the people that don't that would have trouble should one surface. This was the fiercest and largest of the beasts that lived in the water. I will say this. I think it's interesting that God is concluding his tour of the animal world by ending with a dragon. Fire-breathing, untamable, unstoppable, fierce and fearful dragon. Could it be, we don't know for sure, but could it be that God ends with this animal? Because it is this animal throughout Scripture that represents the old serpent. The dragon we know as Satan. Listen as John writes of the tribulation period in the book of Revelation. Michael and his angels waged war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for the dragon as fallen angels in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Follow this as John writes, The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. The dragon is the accuser of the brethren. And one day he will be ultimately and finally defeated by the power of God. But now he accuses the brethren. It was the same dragon that accused Job at the beginning of the book. Remember? And now 
as the book ends, God brings up this creature who will be represented for us throughout the close of his revealed scriptures as the enemy and accuser of our soul. And God says to Job and he says to us, as he did in this chapter, verse 11, he happens to be under my heaven. He is under my control as well. He is my puppet and I move the strings. Martin Luther wrote it this way. He knows his end. He knows his doom is sure. Now, I don't know if Job caught this. I believe he probably lacked the revelation that we have to show the end of the dragon. But I do know this, that the dragon, the great accusing dragon who accused Job, was listening to this conversation between God and Job. He would not have missed it. He would not have missed it. He knows his end. His doom is sure. Why would God choose to talk about these giant and fierce animals? Well, they're intimidating, they're uncontrollable, they're fierce, they're untamable. You get in the presence of them and you would fear for your life. God is telling Job, look, all all the forces and all of the powers and all of the creatures of heaven and earth are under my control. Listen, this, this trip around the universe and field trip to the zoo changed Job's attitude and spirit. One or two hours in the presence of God. And God became everything. And Job found renewed security and, and peace Not in the storm, but in the sovereign who rides through the storm. Sarah Edwards was the wife of Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the key architects of the great spiritual awakening of the 1700s. Just after assuming the role of president of Princeton, he died unexpectedly from smallpox. In fact, it was actually a reaction to a smallpox inoculation that he'd received a month earlier. He died. His wife, Sarah, wrote their daughter, Esther, this note. Esther was, in fact, still grieving the loss of her husband six months earlier. Sarah wrote, My dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands upon our mouths a reference to Job chapter 40. The Lord has done this. He has caused me to adore his goodness that we had your father for so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. That's the response ultimately of Job. It's fivefold. Chapter 42 first gives us affirmation from Job. Verse 2, I know... Lord, that you can do all things. (laughs) Oh, I know that. I've been reminded of that through this tour. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Lord, in other words, when you start something, nobody can stop it. And when you plan something, nobody can hold it back. There is affirmation and there is, secondly, awe. 
Verse 3, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Third, there is a tension. Verse 4, hear now and I will speak. Lord, I'm going to ask you and, and you instruct me. I, I wanted an audience earlier with you, Lord, where, where I was going to tell you a thing or two. Now you, you just teach me. It's the right kind of attention. Affirmation, awe, attention. Now forth, there's adoration. Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I thought I knew something about you. Not like I know now. Which leads him to genuine apology. Verse 6, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job has finally, effectively, come back into fellowship with God in a very real way, now humbled, as I can't imagine we would do anything less than respond like this as a believer with this panoramic display, this personal audience, with God who was speaking through a whirlwind. Job here has come home. I read recently in one of my commentaries on this book of Job about a family of five personal friends with the author, mom, dad, and three sons. The oldest son was gifted intellectually and musically, along with being a fine young scholar. He was also a a splendid violinist. Earlier in his high school years, the father, who was a medical doctor, had some trouble with a boy's spirit of submission. But the author said, you know how you'll do with a gifted child who give them room. You cut them a little too much slack. They're making such great grades. A proud streak soon accompanied this boy's independent spirit. Upon graduation from high school, he was accepted into a prestigious school on the West Coast. Very expensive, but an excellent university known for its academics. The physician father paid the full tuition that year, and the boy began his first year many miles from home. It wasn't long before he started running with the wrong crowd. He, he continued playing violin in the school's orchestra and did well academically, but while he was out there, he cultivated even further a rebellious spirit. After completing his freshman year, he returned home, bringing his proud spirit of selfishness home with him. It wasn't long into the summer before his mom and dad and the two younger brothers realized they had a a real problem getting along. The conflicts intensified. His arrogant, stubborn, and mean-spirited attitude disrupted the family harmony. And late one afternoon, the father had had enough. He called the young man into his study, closed the door, pointed to a large leather chair, and said firmly, Sit down. He then delivered a speech the boy would never forget, and I quote him, Everything you own is mine. I bought every stitch of clothing you wear and everything that hangs in your closet. Your car out there in the driveway is mine. I paid for it. The money in your pocket came from my account. Now, what I want you to do is empty your pockets and your wallet on my desk Leave everything that is mine in this house, and I want you to leave. Leave all your clothing, 
Give me the car keys. And by the way, leave your violin. I bought that too. Leave everything behind that you've been using, which I am now claiming is rightfully mine. You can keep the clothes on your back and the shoes on your feet, but that's it. There's the door. And you may now leave. Oh, by the way, if you decide to change your attitude and come back with a cooperative and submissive spirit, you need to know we'll accept you and welcome you back as part of this family. But not until then. I love you, son, and always will, but you're not what we raised, and I'm not putting up with it any longer. The father told this author, I was reading, that the boy stood defiantly to his feet, pulled out his wallet, put all the money on the desk, left his keys there, walked to the door, and left everything there without saying one word. Not even goodbye. He proudly walked to the sidewalk out front, took a left, got about three blocks down the street, and then stood there motionless with his hands in his empty pockets and began to think it through. Night was falling. He thought about all he'd be facing, the street life he knew nothing about, everything he was leaving behind. He had no money, no prospects, no car, no job, no food, and no college sophomore year ahead of him. After his dad had taken everything he owned that was rightfully his, this young man realized suddenly he had absolutely nothing left. When it was almost dark, he turned around, walked back home with his proud head now hanging down and a heart that was truly repentant. He knocked on his own front door. Dad opened the door with mom standing next to his two younger brothers. They had already been thinking, who's going to get his room and all his stuff? They were disappointed. (laughs) Then came the words, I am sorry, I I realize I really need you and love you. I've been wrong and, and I want you to forgive my attitude and my spirit. They reached out and embraced him and welcomed him home. You know, as I read Job's response, I, I, I see him knocking on the door, as it were, with his proud head hanging low and his repentant heart now submissive to the unchangeable, unknowable, unspeakable, unsearchable, unexplainable ways of the heart and mind of God. I hear him saying, Lord, I'm wrong to demand my way, to command that you answer me. I declared foolishly, I want an audience with God. I have things to say. In spite of my suffering, great as it is, I've tried to bring you down to where I am. I've had no right to challenge you or condemn you or even question you. Everything I have Everything I am, you gave, you made. Friends, we, like Job, believe our solution is an answer. God's answer is bound up in our surrender to his sovereignty, submission to his word, his ways. And his spirit. Father, thank you for the revelation of your creative handiwork to Job. And through this encounter, the 
revelation of Scripture for us. To be able to travel back in time by means of your word to this encounter has been absolutely marvelous. Thank you. Lord, you need to change in our own hearts the kinds of things you changed in Job's. We also are quick to question and condemn and challenge you. Give us this sense of humility and and honor and respect and awe that comes as we continue to submit and surrender to you. Father, I know that suffering is the universal language. And everyone in here has their story. Everyone has their struggle. Would you draw us closer to you? Having benefited from the observation of Job's encounter with you, that you are the great Lord of the universe. Thank you.